0: Episode 21 with Chef Marcus Samuelson. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with award-winning chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelsson. Hailing from a tiny Ethiopian village where tuberculosis had spread amongst the population, a two-year-old Marcus and his sister found themselves orphaned after his birth mother succumbed to the disease, but not after she'd walked 75 miles to the nearest hospital with young Marcus and his sister in tow. Taken in by a compassionate hospital nurse, he and his sister were later adopted by a family in Gothenburg, Sweden where Marcus's love of cooking began. Although he is best known as the owner of the Harlem-based restaurant Red Rooster, Marcus Samuelson cut his culinary teeth at New York's Aquavit, a Scandinavian-infused restaurant where he served as executive chef at the age of 24. While at Aquavit, he was named the best chef in New York by the James Beard Foundation while also receiving a three-star rating in the New York Times, the youngest chef to do so. Marcus has also been featured on numerous cooking shows, including PBS's No Passport Required, Top Chef Masters, Chopped All-Stars, and Iron Chef America. In addition to being a restaurateur, philanthropist, and activist, Marcus is also a best-selling author. In his latest cookbook, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food, Semuelson describes how black cooks and creatives have led American culture forward. Featuring recipes inspired by the chefs and activists that inspire him, the book rewrites the black chef into the narrative of American cuisine and becomes a gustational call and response with the community that welcomed him with open arms. In this episode, we discuss why it was important for him to begin his latest book by focusing on the future, the impact the coronavirus has had on him and how he views himself, the relationship between food and spirituality, and why it's important for African immigrants living in America to recognize their privilege. Recorded during lockdown, it's a joy to welcome my brother, Marcus Samuelson, to the IBI podcast. First of all, Mr. Samuelson, thank you so much for hopping on to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, The work that you do... Um, every moment that we've met you have exemplified not only black imagination but black excellence and so just to off the bat thank you thank you for showing up in the world every day I know it's not easy um so so thank you um thank you you for Oh, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Um, so to get started, I I know you have your book, uh, The Rise. I wanna hop right into that and then maybe circle back on some origin story and just some oh. some more detail things. Um, so in The Rise, the way you structure the book I think is really, really beautiful. Um particularly starting with the future, right? So you've, you've taken these different modules, you know, the future, you know, our archive, right? So honoring our history um, and then like what's happening now. But you start with the future. Why do you start the book with the future? Uh,
1: because I think the future is a hope, especially in difficult, challenging times right now. So the youth, the chefs that are coming up, we actually have an incredible moment to reset the way black excellence is celebrated in food. Mm. So I have a young chef in the kitchen she's just 18 years old, Patricia Gonzalez. Another one is Patricia Yee. She is 24 years old. And when I look at what black cooking will look present and future, I think about Tiana. I think about, Patricia, and we talk about Miss Leah Chase, and we talk about Miss Sylvia Woods, so we have to acknowledge the past, and first of all, just like African-American history in general, it was never told to us, it was never taught to us in school the right way, so the rise is actually an opportunity to acknowledge Black excellence in terms of American food, make the young ones, and us as well, realized that we did contribute to American food scene. Although you might not be able to find it in the cooking schools or in even cookbooks, it's hard to find us. But we contributed a lot. And now it's up to us and the future, the kids in the future, to namesake it, mm-hmm. to own it and present it back out in the world. And guess what? We have social media, which we didn't have before. We have completely different ways. Of, the gatekeepers are not the same. So you can actually start from your own house, the most interesting TV channel in the world, which you couldn't do before. And I believe through our creativity, that is part of us as black people, that we're going to be a big part of the food future, and we're going to be part of reimagining it.
0: Yeah, you and I I believe you mentioned in the book, and I've heard you mention it before, you know, the idea of authorship, you know, yes. a lot of times, you know, historically, particularly in the Americas, if we're lucky, we get to be the narrator, right? We get yeah. to at least maybe tell the story, be the griot, but there's, you know, there's a difference in being the author of that yeah. story. And that's something that, you know, you've really done with this book and really putting each chef in the forefront and allowing them to not only tell their story, but then respond to them. So, so the book itself also undulates um, between both the subjects and yourself. This idea of collaboration, that's something that I've also really admired about the way in which you move through space. Um, when did this idea of, of collaboration and community amongst what? chefs come well, into your purview
1: well if i if i tackle the first piece first authorship right mm-hmm. um black culture in the world has very often been told in through oral right it passes through oral, and we have great legends and great stories that grandparents are passing down and so on and there's something beautiful about that but we live also in a time where uh you have to claim it. You have to have the authorship of it. And when people do Google searches, and if it doesn't show up, it didn't exist. Mm. Which, so this was very important to, I felt we're in an in a intersection where if we don't claim it now, it will never be ours. And there's four cuisines that come from the African-American culture. And we as Black people might not even know that because we haven't put the right worth uh, on our contribution yet. So, you know, low countries, is its own cuisine that, you know, the link between West Africa and the Carolinas. Southern food that we refer to as soul food today, of course, right? And then you think about barbecue, and then Creole. These are four indigenous, incredible cuisines that all stems out of African American culture. And, you know, I think we can learn a lot from entertainment and the journey of entertainment was not easy, but, You know, there were the people who wrote for Elvis and eventually the people who actually didn't get authorship of those songs, right? And it's the same in food. If you don't, if your name is not on it, that's why it was important to publish. To do this book, it was not just about telling my story. It was, I have the opportunity to present something, but here are all the other incredible Black chefs in the country that are pushing and are deserving. And you should celebrating your community wherever you live in the country so it was a much larger story than my own story and that's what i want to present
0: um and i and i love how you started speaking about even putting this book together how did you put this book together and what was that process like actual like timeline because i notice um your your forward is dated july 20 20- 20. um and I understand how quick I know how long it takes for a magazine to come out, so a book like what was that process like?
1: there you know you know the biz and this book we start so the idea of telling a multifaceted stories about the complexity around blackness both for us but also to the world was something that I thought about after I finished the Red Rooster cookbook in 2016. I felt it was important to to do the Red Rooster cookbook about the place. And now it was important to tell a larger story that was not just about Harlem, was just not about my journey. And um, so I really, we started on the journal in 2015, end of 15, and now it's 20. So it's basically four to five years, right? And the book was done in January this year. And then, of course, when the pandemic happened, it changed everything. Mm. So um, I said to the publisher, "You know, we have to we have to wait. We were supposed to come out in spring this year. I was like, no, we have to wait,' because I know that you know we the pandemic changes everything. And then also the conversation around race and culture in this country through the Black Lives Matters um, uh, story and journey and marches that happened this summer and spring." I'm like, we have to stop. And and I'm so grateful to Lum Brown and the team there because they allowed this to happen. And a cookbook is just like a magazine, it's a big collaboration. Usee, the co-writer with me, we worked on this for four years, and she's African American, but she's her father is also Nigerian. So she had even deeper knowledge about West Africa. You know, Ywanda also an immigrant from Nigeria, uh, the recipe developer. So this was a true collaboration between this inner group of us. And it's about scheduling, it's about compromising, it's about storytelling, and which story fits the book. And this is not a list, right? This is just a presentation of the we are here. I could do a completely other book about the rise, about the 200 other people that didn't, you know, we didn't put in the book. But the point is that black chefs are here. We're going to need support from the community more than ever. But here's the authorship, here's to memories, creating memories, and here is to really setting up a new set of value proposition. And so, People can aspire to be part of our community, our culture, our food.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I want I want to actually uh, circle back because I remember I remember when you um, opened Red Rooster in Harlem, and that was that was huge. Um, and but what again? What I loved the most was you were not just opening a restaurant; you were opening a dialogue right, because you you really approached it and understood that there were people here who had restaurants, right, who, you know, Satapani, right, right, you know, yes. right down the street from you. Yes. Like there are many people who have been in this place, um, space before you, and that you included them, that you not only, you know, opened Red Rooster, but you used your own platform to highlight yes. these other people. Is that something that you've always done? Was that something that you realized along your journey that you needed to bring other people with you? And I say that knowing that, you know, as a photographer, and I'm, I'm assuming sometimes as a chef, although you're working with teams, it's really kind of a singular kind of mental space at times. Yeah. And But this 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 community of rise, I mean, not to be... <laughs> Not to be funny, but you know, you also brought along these other narratives along with you.
1: Yeah, I think that um, you have to acknowledge your privilege. Mm. And I have been extremely privileged. Not only am I a Black person that grew up in Sweden with all the privileges means to grow up in Sweden, schooling, healthcare, but what I'm really trying to say is the privilege of the benefits that. African-American civil rights movement gave me. And in America, I don't think people understand, black or white, the impact of the civil rights movement for blackness and other across the world, right? So because of your grandparents' generation, I was able to have a space in little Sweden as a black person, right? And so when you grew up with this, and my parents uh you know constantly felt fed us you know music from stevie and bob of course you know michael and prince uh but you know images around black excellence i read james baldwin had to read um alex haley malcolm you know what i mean like all of that stuff so i've always felt that i owe a huge tax not only to america because america has opened so many doors for us particularly to African-American culture. So I knew when I moved to New York, eventually I will move to Harlem, and eventually I will open a restaurant that really present us in the four or five different ways that I think um, the world knows us, but also maybe where it's really an untold story. So music, art, entertainment, of course, but food and hospitality, and bring everybody together. Give the locals, a see a cent, not a place in the corner, but in the center. Let the visitor be part of that experience. And even let the tourist in. There is a place where all of us can exist. But I do think that African American culture never gets enough credit to what is open up door for other movements, right? And other in the world. So for me, living here in Harlem, being surrounded by Black black excellence, both in terms of institutions like Apollo, Schomburg, Studio Museum, as people as Bevy Smith, Lana Turner, and Thelma Golden and Dapper Dan, right? So when I make, create this, I create it for Harlem, but also Black excellence. And that's my lens, right? But it's also a lot of gratitude and acknowledging my privilege.
0: Yeah. I- Thank, first of all, yeah, thank you. Um, And, you know, when you spoke about even putting the book together and, you know, the writer who's African American, but has roots in Nigeria, you know, and you, you know, being from Ethiopia by way of Sweden, you know, opens up another dialogue that I feel I've been having a lot recently on different social media platforms between um, the diaspora, between African Americans, between um, African people on the continent, and then yep. actually Afro-Caribbeans, and then European Africans, um, which is a reconciliation, a lot of reconciliation and misunderstanding um, around divisions, divisions, or you know the the shadows of divisions, right? So, you know. All, you know p- people on the continent of Africa viewing African Americans in a certain way African Americans viewing Africans in a certain way um, and 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 the privileges that come with either or how can we as a people, as a Black diaspora, as a global Black community, began to break down some of these stories. For me, one thing that I really noticed or what that wasn't spoken about a lot of times is that white supremacy gets to go unscathed in a lot of these stories, particularly understanding that the ways in which we understood each other, the channels through which we understood each other were controlled by a very specific group of people. But for you, how do you see... Uh, a path forward that we can all move together because we we're we're really very very similar in the ways in which we experience yeah. the world.
1: Well, I think nuances are important, and I think storytelling. One thing. How old is your podcast?
0: Uh, five months. Six months. Five months.
1: So <laughs> my podcast. At this moment is about five months as well. Ah, cool. Right, and um. I started this moment and that's the silver lining through this pandemic. As creatives, we still have to create. And it's without you and I talking to one another about it, we both went into creating a podcast, right? And we're connecting. And I created my podcast this moment together with my friend, Jason Diakete. He happens to be African-American, but lives in Sweden. And me being um, obviously American now, but having my roots in Ethiopia and Sweden, and living here. And what do we do as two creatives raising two young kids when the world is completely turned upside down? <laughs> right. And we're having great conversations with people like you know, Nicole Hannah Jones and, and, and Thelma Golden and you know, all kinds of conversations about this here. But I'm I'm telling you that because you have to document your journey in your test, you have to share your story. So Doria, you are You probably belong, if I guess, to four or five different communities, depending on the question, right? Which is beautiful. You're a black man, but you belong to many different communities. And with each one of those communities, you have something to share, gain, and give. Also something to take from those communities. But each nuance opens up a door for somebody that you might not have a clue needed something from that door, Mm -hmm. right? So... I can speak to you as a Swedish person. I can speak to you as a Black Swede. And you might ask, oh, are there Black people in Sweden? That doesn't mean that you're arrogant. It's just maybe you never knew what that looked like, right? And I can speak to you as an African, but I can also speak to you as specifically as an Ethiopian. Well, with the conflict that goes on in Ethiopia right now, maybe you want to know what that is really truly about, right? So we all have these keys into different communities. and As black people, one of my biggest privileges that's happened to me is I've been able over 25 years to be able to take an audience with me and share my complex journey and unpack blackness, one experience of blackness. But my experience is different than your experience. So the only way we can learn is to tell stories, make podcasts, do books, shoot photography, um, filmmaking, all of those different in music, and don't apologize for it. You shouldn't. You should do your podcast in the fullest truth of your podcast. And then each time you go there, you're gonna open up something for a listener that is super curious, but maybe had nobody else to ask about just that topic. So, I think the pandemic as horrible as it is, but it's going to allow us as creative to rethink and repackage ourselves and reconnect.
0: Absolutely. And and speaking of your complex journey, let's circle back just a little bit. It has yeah. been very well documented, but there perhaps may be people who are not listening sure. uh, or, or who are listening who haven't heard it. Yeah, sure. um, so you're originally from Ethiopia um, and you're Mother and your sister—you were there with your mother and your sister. If I'm not, cor- if I'm correct—and um, there was a tuberculosis outbreak in Ethiopia—and um, your mother, in all of her power and strength, strapped you to her back with your sister in tow and walked seventy-five miles to Addis Ababa yeah. um, to a hospital. Um, I'm gonna let you take it over from yeah. there quickly, but that's yeah. the groundwork.
1: Yeah, thank you. No, I mean, I was born into a hut. And yes, uh, that is about the size of two restaurant tables. And we were hit by tuberculosis, got to the hospital through the uh, strength of our mother. And she passed away. We survived. I was about two and a half. And my sister was about five. And here's also what happened. I was lucky enough for my mom to take us to that hospital. But I also was in the hands of a nurse that her act of kindness took us into her home. Because we were now well or healthy. We had nowhere to go. So that idea of that you created this or you were here because of you so great, for me, it doesn't exist. If that nurse wouldn't have been as kind enough to say, hey, they need to go somewhere these kids. She took us in. She had three kids of her own. She was a single mother. She took two more kids, two of us in, fed us, took care of us for three months. At the same time, found an adoption agency that got us adopted to Sweden, right? That's not a small undertaking. So I always say that that my recipe of getting here and speaking to you has a lot of luck but it also has a lot of random acts of kindness and that are transformative. You know, I grew up in Sweden. Me and my sister were the only black kids, not only in our neighborhood, not in our, our, in our community, but basically in the city. But we grew up with two amazing parents that loved us and an older sister. And yeah, we looked odd, but that we were a family. And so for me the identity of who gets to decide what a family should look like is basically that family. That's Mm. it. I don't ever listen to like what it should look like or anything like that. Because if you give, if you're ready to give love and mentor and and give, which my parents were, you're now a family.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, you mentioned that your parents, let you listen to black music and you read James Baldwin. What did America look like to you from Sweden, particularly not seeing yourself in your own environment? And then what, and then, and then what was it when you actually got here?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would say, um, I mean, we lived through America through its stars, through black excellence, through the Cosby show, through, Michael's video, through Prince. And, but I would say when Fab Five Freddy started Yo! MTV Raps, it was game-changing for me. Because it was also when I saw not-so-fabulous America, right? Mm-hmm. It was really through when you started to see Cleveland or Queens or the, you know the other side of LA. And that's why I always loved that show because it started actually, You know, when you watch Diana Ross or Stevie, it was always flawless and incredible (laughs) and big, the hair at least, right? (laughs) But it was amazing. But once you start looking at something like Tribe Called Quest, you know, they were like basically my age. And I was like, and they, you know, it was just more real. It was more like a documentary style. And it was fascinating to me. And I was always drawn in by hip hop and the new the medium of videos and it just opened up my curiosity i have to live there and i would tell you also on a day like this one of the major reasons why i moved to america it's because of mayor dinkins mm, mm. because my father said hey in new york they picked a black mayor if they did that elected a black mayor it will be space for a black chef one day and that's a pretty, you know, I think about it today on the morning where we found out that Mayor Dinkins, 93 years old, passed away. So there's a lot of humility and you think about his trajectory and his life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you, Mayor Dinkins. Just take a, a yeah. moment. And so you know you 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 wear a lot of hats, right? You I mean you're also wearing a hat, and you also have <laughs> hats behind you on the wall. <laughs> you literally have six hats behind you yeah, on that's the a good wall. Line. <laughs> um, completely unintentional. Um, you know, um, husband, father, you know, chef, uh, entrepreneur, um, writer. I would say you're a writer as well, and that's something I want to circle back on. But how do you do it? Like, what is your morning routine like? How do you mentally picture your day each day or the month or the quarter or the year?
1: Well, being a chef is being a giver, right? And that's the essence of it. I want to share my knowledge. I'm, I was given a lot of tools, a lot of great people invested in me in terms of physically teaching these things building cooking understanding that so now it's my time to share that knowledge and and also inspiring people but also be inspired right and we can all draw inspiration from different different times difficult times and uh i feel like once i leave my house the day truly belongs to creating
0: Mm.
1: And the creations can be building. You know, we just finished uh, just finished the holiday issue for Bon Appetit. We just guest edited a holiday issue for Bon Appetit. It could be doing a podcast with you or prepping for my for our own podcast with you know our guest going to be Angela Rye, for example, all right. So so it could be cooking um, a cooking class for kids uh, in the restaurants for public school kids that haven't been to a restaurant, unpacking what a restaurant is. It could be finishing the book, the rice. Um, So for me, it's it's all around food, right? I do this around, my medium is food. That's what I'm connected to. That's what I'm put here to do. But uh, you have to allow creativity to come into your day. Can't just be so structured. So you never allow creativity to creep in. For me, it's very important to leave space in the day where I'm allowing creativity to come in.
0: And your morning, like you get, uh, the alarm goes off, or is there an alarm? Like, what, those steps. Well, I have the best
1: organic alarm in the world. Talk to me about it. Oh. (laughs) At 5.30. (laughs) And it's, we're,
0: we're going 5.32, you're out of bed. Wow. And then, yeah. and then what do you have a glass of lemon water? Like what, what, how do you set yourself up for the well, day? Ahead?
1: You know, my wife and I, we're with him in the morning and you know, we, we got to take him to school around eight, 15. But those first two and a half hours, it's a blend between, all right, I got breakfast or you got breakfast, you got him or you got breakfast. Well, that's the duty. And most of the time I go down and make breakfast and we get going that way. And you know, once we're down doing breakfast, he wants in, you know, whether that's chopping bananas or, you know, like he came to me the other day and like he he knows about persimmons. You know, he you know, he knows about pomelo, like grapefruits and he's very much been around food since he was a little tiny little toddler. So he wants in. Maybe not to eat it, just to like cut it and rip it apart and throw it out, but so he gets in, you know. And um, that's also the time where maybe I start slowly to think through. Okay, what is actually because that's a big gap. What's actually going to happen today? How can I think long? How can I think short? How can I really structure my day? So when I enter when I leave the house and drop him off at school, I'm ready for it. Right? It's been really three and a half hour of three hours of preparation really between speaking to Zion and my wife, but also like, so it's never really, because we up so early, <laughs> it's really a good way of getting there, you know?
0: And when you say think long and think short, what do you mean?
1: Long is in like the rise. Is there a book or is it an article? Hmm. And very often I test out. Maybe I do a blog post. Maybe I write a piece on it. If there's more there. So I'm thinking now very much about the connectivity between food and spiritual compass. What's the connectivity between food and spiritual compass? Is that a book? Is that a dinner item? Is it a menu? I don't know yet. So this is four years later, we'll know if that's a book. Uh, but that, that's something that I can, and I'll ask a lot of people hey, how does your spirituality impact your eating? nine out of ten might say absolutely not because they never thought about it in that way right but you, that tense one might say you know as a buddhist bah, 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 as a muslim as a jewish as a jew you know and that's where i'm like all right and sometimes it doesn't have to be through a concrete what we think about as religion Sometimes it can be like well i connected to my yoga you know So I don't know then, but I'm thinking that's what I'm thinking about.
0: That's actually a beautiful segue because I wanted to get into spirituality. Um, It's something that in the verbiage that you've used before, you know, you speak about a call and response, right? You know, as a chef, um, you know, you are having a conversation with the person that you're serving. And then also, and correct me if I'm wrong, understanding that your father was also a spiritual leader, mm-hmm. you know, back in Ethiopia. And that when I think about the way in which you move in the world and in the community, it is yeah. on this like Brahmin like um spiritual path of, of of leadership and community. And ultimately service, which is right, right. To minister means to serve, which is baked into, again, no pun intended, um, (laughs) your kind of ethos. So how do you view spirit, spirituality, and what is your spiritual practice?
1: Well, I love to serve. It's also a big part of being a chef. Uh, But spirituality is in my life in so many different ways. So, on my father's side, Orthodox priest in a tiny village. On my mother, on my wife's side, we have a Catholic priest. We have a a nun within the family. And that impacts, spirituality impacts us on a daily basis. Um, And knowing that I've been fortunate. So many times and it's very little I've had actually had anything to do with that like when you're a kid and somebody just helps you like that I also grew up with on my father's side in Sweden where they were fishermen so and also deeply religious so religion has always been around me understanding being in Harlem, where you're surrounded with hundreds and hundreds of churches, and when you enter a black church, that call and respond, it's what combines all the black churches. When you open a restaurant in a community like that, you cannot do that without have thought about how it connects back to the black church, both from music, and food, and how we interact, and then to our own practice, you know, we give grace, we think about our spirituality deeply. Um, but I will also say I'm not so much in one space, so I've shut out or shut down other religions, right? I love walking with my mother-in-law in Harlem when we walk through the parks. She kisses trees and, and she, the way she interacts with nature is based on her spirituality is much more a free-form African spirit, like religion is in the nature. And I'm open to that because that works for her and she, she's from the countryside. So I wanna be open because I also seen the other side of religion where my religion is better than your religion. And I don't wanna get into that because it's like we all need to be spiritual in our own way. And I want to leave space enough, room enough for people to allow them to have and breathe in their spirituality. Um, and for people to discover. So it's, it's something that, I've you know, I've lived in Asia, I've lived in Europe, I've lived in America, I'm from Africa. So when you've seen so many different ways of interacting, you have to give space to that local spirituality that that community thirsted for.
0: Yeah, I I... Thank you for that. I, I I love this idea of of, of spirit, the mm-hmm. the ineffable nature of God, right? Also combined with the ephemerality of food, right? Because food, you know, real food, fresh food, actual food, has a time limit. Yeah. What role? And this is actually also a good question because you just um, celebrated your. 50th birthday Um, so congratulations on that so this is two questions one what role does time play in your practice as being a chef and food right because knowing that these things you know timing is everything in many ways not only in the preparation but just what you have Um, actually I'll leave it at that question and I'll come back to the other one
1: Well i think that food um, we have to revalue proposition now we think about food because food is more important than when normal person gives allows it to give time to what we put in our body is essentially our our body is our temples right the are our temples so i think that we have to go back to understanding How to cook, how to eat, how to serve better. And that can be done only by cooking. Mm. So if you don't know how to cook, if you only order in, you don't understand fundamentally yourself, right? Because you're going to need different foods on different days. When you have a cold, you're going to need more raw garlic and ginger. To prevent that cold, you're going to need more turmeric, right? There's really the link between your body medicine and how you feel is directly linked and people always try to think like well i don't have time for that i'm just gonna order in i'm gonna that that i i understand why you do that at one or two days a week but on seven days you have to actually cook yeah yeah um
0: that's that's beautiful and also thank you for putting that um the list of like wet and dry pantry items in the back of the book because i'm going through these recipes i was like wait i don't have oh oh he put a he put an index in the back thank you yeah thank you so much um and you know and thinking about you know us being both in harlem right now and um living in these urban environments um in your book you have i'm sorry uh davida davison right um out in Detroit, who has um, Food Lab, Food Lab Detroit. Um, And actually going back to spirituality, I love this quote, I'm just gonna read it because I think it's so beautiful. Um, This is on page 96 for anybody who wants to pick up the book. Um, She says, in times of dishevelment, times of uncertainty, times of upheaval, when you can't control any damn thing, what is that one part of your life that you can have control over? For many people, it's food. At least I can control what I put in my mouth. At least I can have sovereignty over how my family eats. And later on, it speaks about how her father's a pastor, which informs the way in which she speaks, which has a link to the way in which you move, and also has a link to me, because my father is also a pastor. Um, but Ooh. thinking about the urban landscape, you know, what she's doing in Detroit is amazing and using you know, these plots of land to create urban um, gardens and and farms. But what do you think a city like New York could do? What do you think a a place like Chicago could do? And we're thinking about, um, you know, food disparities in urban communities. Um, I was having a conversation with Nadia Lopez, who you may be familiar with out in Brownsville, and just how, holistically she had to approach the education of these students and it had to start with the food. It had to start with them picking up a honey bun on the way to school from the bodega or, you know, some random chicken that they were picking up that was, you know, sending them reeling during class. How do you view, you know, urban gardening, um, the future of food in urban environments?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the future of urban gardens gonna be uh, vital for us to get food into our community, black and brown communities, you know? There are people like, one of the queens that started it, it is Karen Washington from the Bronx. She's both an activist that started urban gardens in the Bronx in the 80s. And um, someone like Davida is key to this because she inspires and guides us where to go next and what to do. Um, But it's also, there's a lot of good technology out there that's gonna help us uh, create urban gardens that are modern. And um, you you think about urbanism as a whole, there's a lot of roofs in Manhattan. If we can fill those roofs with the right technology and the right solar system and the right way, you know, we have all of these things that we can fly people to the moon or people's gonna start vacation in the space, trust me, we can figure out urban gardens and make food more affordable for to all kinds of people. So the, the solutions are there, it's more about, are we gonna do it? How are we gonna do it? We can fix that. But it's really about um, understanding best, best practice and understanding, being committed to urban part of the world also in terms of health. Once we decide to do that, you know, Michelle Obama started in the White House with that urban garden that she put in the White House lawn. Uh, She did a great job and her team around her did a great job allowing those ideas and inspiring other urban gardens throughout the country, right? Obviously, that got interrupted. But now with uh, Harris Biden, there's an opportunity for that to live again.
0: Yeah, I I um I totally agree and even just thinking about my friends during COVID, how many of them started learning how to cook and grow their own vegetables just you know, just out of safety, you know, just out of safety yeah. and being stuck. Um so I would love to go back to this idea of time because you just did have this 50th birthday. Um and your own start in New York at 24 as like the top chef at Aquavit, which is insane and incredible. So you've just been killing it for a long time, like decades on decades, which is insane. What would 50 year old Marcus tell 24 year old Marcus?
1: I would um, stop and listen, stop and enjoy. Um, have a deeper conversation around the moment right when you work as hard as we all do to be creatives black creatives in New York City it does come with that ultimate price of time we work so hard so it's very hard when you've been at one of your favorite shoots and you put all in at into it do you ever take a moment and actually realizing you're doing this right now, right? Mm, and, mm. and for me, I mean, we achieved a lot, my team and I very early, but we never really stopped and enjoyed it uh, and I would like to have documented that better and enjoyed it a little just like a little bit more and that comes with growth comes with experience and understanding that that moment is real, right when I got to cook for President Obama for his state dinner, I realized that that moment was bigger than us that day. So I made sure that we all enjoyed it, that, um, but you know, in my 20s, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just wrapped up, left, gone to the next. But it was was a time where I realized, wow, these occasions are special. I wanna honor it and I wanna take care of it.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And what, thinking about your path um, as a chef, um, I remember reading, and again, feel free to correct me when I'm wrong, that in culinary school, um, it was maybe a student or a colleague of yours who asked you about African food or Black food, and you hadn't considered it yes. before. What did that open up for you and and why do you think you hadn't considered it before
1: well that's a great question and i i needed that rude awakening first of all i love speaking to students because as young students they're very open minded and they're dare to ask questions that nobody can prep for and that's great right and i've lived in japan at that point i've lived in europe but i had i think as an adopted kid i Culturally, I didn't understand myself yet. And that was if there's a space where your parent can take you to. Then there's a space that you got to discover on your own. And I had to go to Africa. I had to go specifically to Ethiopia. It was part of my life journey that I had not opened that door yet. And um, after that question, I knew what I had to do. I had to go and discover Ethiopia, discover Africa. And I reconnected with my father after that. and. Um, that was probably the birth of starting point of red rooster to understand my own black culture better and be more informed and it was also the starting point essentially to the book the rise because without rooster it wouldn't have been the rise so we all need a shot in the arm a wake-up call a nudge whatever you want to call it because even if you're working hard on a great path there's always something that we have had a blind spot for, that we maybe knew we had to do, but we just pushed away. And that was my wake-up call.
0: And, and how old were you at this time?
1: Probably 25.
0: Okay, so this was, this was after you had actually even already come to the States.
1: Yeah, it was um, upstate, at the Culinary Institute of America. And, you know, but I looked at that as, thank you for acknowledging that. You made me think. And just as you and I shared this moment here, as we're having the conversation, we both, you're working, so you're thinking about your questions and you're thinking about everything. The impact of this conversation might happen when you're at the food store the next day and thinking about that, or when you are doing something else. And same with me, right? There's the power of asking each other questions, going there. Um, and sharing as, as as individuals, it's important because, you know, I, I'm grateful that she pushed me. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was just a question. For me, it became something I had to do, and, you know, it changed the trajectory of my life.
0: That's that's amazing. I love you know as you speak. I think about you know, again, this biblical story of like the prodigal son, right? Um, When you, you know, either by choice or by happenstance are removed from yourself in a way. Um, And there is this moment, sometimes it's just, I don't know why, it always seems kind of mid-20s, I had a similar situation, Um, that you you come back to yourself. Um, And so thank you for sharing that. Um, And in this journey, what do you feel was like your biggest failure because there's been a lot of successes but i know a lot of success comes from
1: no i would say that um i spent so much time away from my immediate family my sisters and my um families i missed a lot i missed truly seeing my nephews grow up more than occasional visits. I missed funerals. And when you start to miss this occasion, big occasions, it separates you from a family in a way that you give yourself to the world in one way, but it separates yourself from immediate family in a way. Um, and that, that's hard to rebound back from. But I would say, you know, as a creative as somebody that's an immigrant as a black person i had to go do it my way i had to do it this way that was the only way that i could do it and know how to do it and yeah but i'm grateful for my journey and uh, i appreciate the lessons that i've learned and i want to thank you for this moment thank you for having me on i now got to go and do my podcast over there and i hope to have you on and they're texting me where are you we're supposed to start Uh
0: oh oh my god i looked at the time it is we are right on the dot two zero zero okay mr samuelson marcus brother thank you so much and really quickly i just love to acknowledge you for all of the work that you continue to do the way in which you show up uh for not only your own family but your greater harlem you know, global black community. Um, And so thank you. One quick last question. What is the world you imagine for the future?
1: Love, positive support, see each other for people and humans. And um, I think we're gonna go into very difficult space and time right now with winter and COVID, but out of that must positive win must collaboration win and creativity and i look forward to it and i'm going to be there for it
0: absolutely right. i'll see you on the other side brother Have thank a great you so way. much i appreciate you <laughs> Ciao, thank ciao. You. salam well i don't know about you but i am starving (laughs) thank you all so much for tuning into this in-depth conversation with the incredibly generous marcus samuelson Uh, be sure to go pick up his new book the rise black cooks and the soul of american food wherever books are sold we'll also link it up in the show notes for you Uh, I personally found the stories and the essays to be just as compelling as the recipes, or well, uh, the pictures of the recipes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit that subscribe button, rate and review us over on iTunes, and share it out with a friend you think would really enjoy this convo. You know, just tag us over on Instagram, at Black Imagination, and tag Marcus as well. Let us know what stuck out to you. What I took away from this conversation is the importance of gratitude, the power in recognizing and honoring community, and how food itself can become a form of prayer. We have so many more incredible guests coming up. I cannot wait to share them with you. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.